You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. In a time of magic and superstition where the supernatural walk the night, legend tells of an evil that does not sleep. Now, empowered by the secrets of past generations, a small band of heroes will rise to confront their destiny. Experience the adventure. Embrace the darkness. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is El Agoro. Yes, sir. I've been charging my coin sword in the light of the full moon, and I am ready to take on some hopping vampires. Also back in the booth this week is Ms. Sam Deegan. And I have decided to adopt my very own little child vampire. This week, we are discussing the Mr. Vampire series. Released in 1985, the original Mr. Vampire film was directed by Ricky Lau and stars Lam Ching Ying as a Taoist priest who battles the forces of evil along with his two inept students. This became a blueprint for dozens of other films, some of them under the Mr. Vampire moniker and others not. We'll be talking about the official Mr. Vampire movies as well as the unofficial ones, spin-offs, copycat films, and many others on this episode. So get ready to explore the wild world of Jiangxi and be warned of spoilers. I will save folks from my tutorial about some of the aspects of Hong Kong cinema and instead hope that you've listened to the episode on a Better Tomorrow films. Though I might dip into some pedantic territory along the way, and I hope to avoid saying anything overtly wrong. You know, it's just because I am a guaylo over here with uh, little knowledge of culture of China and Hong Kong outside of the movies. So, Sam, when was the first time you experienced Mr. Vampire or other Hong Kong horror comedies? I would say it was probably like... Somewhere between 10 to 15 years ago when Netflix first started up and they had everything imaginable somehow on DVD. And I would just put in like huge lists of movies I had heard about or, you know, seen titles referenced in like those sort of like older movie books like The Psychotronic Guide and things like that. And I somehow had heard about about Chinese ghost story and that arrived and I had no idea what I was getting into and instantly fell in love and then had to go and seek out other things like those Shaw Brothers Black Magic films and certainly Mr. Vampire, Encounters of the Spooky Kind and 
I just, so I kind of watch them all at once and sometimes confuse elements between them. I mean, until the rewatch for this episode, but I just, I love them sort of collectively so much. How about you, El Goro? It's hard to actually narrow down the first time I sat down and watched one of these films. I know, or at least I have very hazy recollections of seeing some of them in my father's vast unsubtitled bootleg uh, collection that he had, where I would just put on a random uh, Hong Kong movie and know nothing about what was going on, but was in it simply for the fights. And I had vague memories of these sort of hopping vampire movies, or they just look like white-faced people hopping around. It wasn't until later as my interest in horror and also uh, various aspects of fantasy gaming became more and more pronounced that I became more aware of the concept of Jiangxi as it started penetrating into the geek culture. But I think the first time that uh, I became or I actually made an effort to sit down and watch these would have been when I was about in college so it was about 2003, 2004 when I started watching stuff like um, Chinese Ghost Story or the, one of the early earliest ones I can remember was a 2004 Gordon Liu movie, Shaolin vs. Evil Dead. And it wasn't until, I think, last year that I sat, sat down and watched uh, Mr. Vampire for the first time for my show in order to pair it up with the 2013 homage to this entire cycle, Rigor Mortis. So I was in college and getting into Hong Kong films, and one of my roommates, Jeff, saw this zine over at Tower Records and brought it over, and it was a zine called Asian Eye. And I might have told this story on this uh, podcast before, and if I have, please forgive me. And it was uh, just this immense... I don't even, it was like an 11 by 17 folded over zine. And it was by this guy who eventually I would meet a friend named Colin Geddes. And he was talking all about these different Hong Kong films. And he wrote specifically about these hopping vampire films. And I had never heard of such a concept before. I had not seen the, what, Legend of Seven Golden Vampires or any of that kind of stuff at this point. Was very unfamiliar with Hong Kong horror. And just was reading about these. I was like, I need to track these down. And this is right around the time that, like I said, I was getting into Hong Kong cinema, driving 40 miles to go to a little grocery store that had a video section to it and managed to track down a lot of these movies, though I watched them in no particular order. So I saw One Eyebrow Priest and Magic Cop and Mr. Vampire and Mr. Vampire 3 and all of these movies all mixed up. So I really never sat down and watched them all in order as much as there is an order <laughs> until this episode. And uh, I, yeah, we'll talk about the, the order of some of these films and just the way that things change. It's kind of, it's same. It kind of reminds me of when we would talk about things like uh, Czechoslovakian film, and it's basically the same group of actors and they just play different roles throughout these movies. And sometimes they move into director roles, sometimes writer, a lot of times stars, sometimes good guys, sometimes bad guys. But for me, the, the one piece that keeps all of these together is the actor Lam Ching Yang, who is just amazing. I love this guy. He's so unforgettable. I mean, I remember the first time I saw him in one of these Mr. I honestly can't remember which Mr. Vampire film I watched first. It may have been the second one, but... When you first see his giant eyebrow and you don't really have any context for what's going on, it's like kind of comical, but kind of baffling. But he just has this sort of amazing charisma. And 
I think part of what drew me to his characters is he seems to be very serious, but often has this kind of really warm underlying sense of humor that I love. Oh, definitely. And he just exudes a certain kind of gravitas. I mean, it's easy for him to get overshadowed, particularly when it starts turning into the more physical side of things, because even though he was a quite talented action performer, he wasn't quite at the same level as some of the people that he was working with in these films. Yet he has this presence and he is undeniably the anchor of so many of these movies that when we do watch one where he doesn't appear, it fe- you can't help but feel that they're lacking something. It's tragic. Yeah, it is totally tragic. Yeah, we'll talk about Mr. Vampire 4 as we go along. (laughs) And he plays older in a lot of these movies, and sometimes he won't wear the gray in his hair. He was older than a lot of the other people that were in the cast. He had been around for years. He was kind of a contemporary of, like, Jackie and Sammo and these folks, and he was pretty good friends with Sammo, from what I understand, uh, to the point where Sammo was a uh, pallbearer in his funeral. Spoilers, Lame is no longer with us, but he had been around for a long time, had been an assistant to Bruce Lee, had worked on some Bruce Lee films. He would double for, uh, a lot of times he would double for women when it came to some performing because he was a slighter build, shorter guy. And it's funny because he goes in drag or will adopt feminine things in times in sometimes in these movies but yeah he had that that gravitas and just that very he was very very dour in a lot of these movies but then you get those lighter moments of comedy like even in the first movie when they're about to go to uh like a kind of a fancy tea ceremony and he doesn't really know the stuff so he wants to bring along uh, one of his uh assistants with him so that his assistant can make mistakes and he can learn from his assistant's mistakes it's very very conniving in that way but and I, I kind of love him for that. And he knows all of the rules of Taoism. And that's the whole thing with these movies is just the crazy stuff that goes on in them. And the way that magic is just this everyday thing in these movies. And he is an incredible Taoist priest, magician, whatever you want to call it, and knows all of the rituals, all of the ways to defeat these spirits. And the spirits come in all these different shapes, sizes, configurations. And as you're watching these movies as a first time viewer, you're just like, what the hell's going on? Because there's just so many different things. I mean, it's like if you took somebody, well, maybe from China and plunked them down in front of a, a TV set and showed them a whole series of Western vampire films, they'd be like, so garlic works against secret skies. They don't see themselves in mirrors and just start listing off all the weird things that quote unquote, we have with our vampires and then take us and move us over in front of a, a Chinese TV set and show us all these Hong Kong spiritual films. And we're going to be the same way because it's like what you cover yourself in soot and they can't see you. If you put these leaves over your eyes, you can see them if they're invisible. What the hell? So that's kind of the fun of it is to explore learning about their stuff, even though I think a lot of it is just made up for the screen. Like we are dealing with real, you know, it was folklore and these kind of things. But I think a lot of it as it went along would change and morph depending on what they wanted to do in the maze. 
Well, it almost reminds me of what they did in Vampire vs. Vampire when they were trying to depict Catholicism and they turned the song Hallelujah into an actual prayer that was being used. It's all of the ephemera of faith, but just kind of thrown together and repurposed for the purpose of the actual film without any real eye towards trying to get things accurate. But I love the cinematic depiction of this Taoist magic, how uh, damn practical it all is. You know, is there a spirit running around? We'll wrap it up in a cloth, throw it in a pot, pop a label on it, boom, we're done. Yeah, I I feel like on some level, as especially as horror fans or in the sense that it's seeped into popular culture, I think people tend to take kind of Western cinematic vampire myths more seriously because we've had them for, you know, a century now. But they're equally bullshit and made up. So it's kind of interesting to be able to get ahead of that in Hong Kong cinema because, you know, it didn't really start until 1980. And it's kind of interesting to be able to see that unfold in such a condensed period of time. And I really love the way it contrasts with something like Hammer's uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which that was really my first exposure to what I would call like Hong Kong horror. Cause I'm a huge hammer fan and really, really love that film. But it's the sort of thing where hammer wanted to do a co-production, but they didn't really bother to do, you know, no surprise, didn't really bother to do any kind of research into Chinese myths or legends and basically just sort of used Chinese culture and these, this idea of like these Chinese vampires as window dressing And so it's interesting to see just how different the Mr. Vampire films are from that and how they like took such a sharp but delightful turn away from it. We talk about our myths as being like, these are the real myths. And it's like, yeah, we we have all these rules for stuff that are made up creatures. So it's like, and then when people change the rules on our made up creatures, then we get all upset. Like people are still butthurt about running zombies. And it's like, guys zombies we're talking about animating dead corpses here not generally something i tend to see on a daily basis um and and then yeah it's like oh my god you know you change it so that you blow up a vampire's head and that's how you kill them but really use a wooden stake to the heart and a silver cross and all that and it's like why do we have all these rules and yeah they've all come to us through pop culture there's no real vampires guys i'm really i mean good thing i said spoilers up front but yeah there's there's not real vampires guys so the whole idea like you know jiang shi the idea of these reanimated corpses and stuff they were around for centuries but it really took until stamo started to play with that on screen and things like spooky encounters and the dead and the deadly for us to start to get our rules as far as hong kong stuff goes so yeah it's the same thing it's like you know once max shrek got on screen once Bella the ghost got on screen then we start to build our narrative of of draculas and of vampires and when it comes to the Jiangxi, the chinese hopping vampires here we go now 1980 we start to do this and it really takes off in 85 with mr vampire though there had been other spooky movies before that and other instances of hopping vampires before that but that one mr vampire was a huge hit when it came out and that's why we're talking about this is because it has spun off so many things and because mr vampire is such a fun film 
It almost brings to mind to the line from uh, Big Trouble in Little China from Egg Shen when he's describing his form of mysticism. We take what we want and we leave the rest. And that really feels like what they were doing with so many of these Mr. Vampires movies, just grabbing what they needed, inventing what they what they wanted and just presenting it all because, hey, at the end of the day, it's just a movie, right? And I love how tongue in cheek they are and how I do think that a lot of Western genre fans, like you were saying, take these sort of myths way too seriously and get really butthurt when directors try to play with them. I mean, I'm not defending Twilight in any sense of the word, but people were so outraged that like the vampire's skin was different and they could walk in the sunlight. It's like, why do you care? <laughs> well, what's, what blows my mind about the backlash against Twilight, the idea of sunlight being anathema to Western vampires is largely a cinematic uh, conceit. Yeah. If you go if you go back to Bram Stoker, Dracula had no problem walking around in sunlight. It weakened him a little, but it wouldn't burst into flames. It wasn't until Murnau's Nosferatu that they started using the idea of vampires being killed by sunlight. And even that wasn't picked up by the Universal films until Son of Dracula. So yeah. <laughs> people are a little too precious about these sorts of things. No, and that's what I love so much about these Mr. Vampire movies is throughout the series, they really seem to delight, regardless of who's directing or who's writing, they seem to really delight in seeing how far they can kind of stretch and manipulate these sorts of rules, not only to make it, you know, scarier, more entertaining, but also in the comedic scenes, like the one where they, where they fry the ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Tempora ghost. I just love that. It's so bold. Yeah. And there's like, just like they'll throw in things for the sake of throwing them in it, it. Like they'll have comedic moments where like you steal someone's hair and then you can make them do what you're doing. And so there's always like these, you know, mis- it's very three's company, right? It's very like mistaken identity or mistaken actions, or you've got the guy outside who's, you know, mimicking, taking down his pants. And then the guy inside the room is taking down his pants in front of a pretty girl. And it's just like, okay, yeah, we'll just do these things for comedic purposes. And eventually they might come back in another movie or they might not. It might just be a one-time thing. It's like, how does sticky rice affect vampires? Right. I think we get that in the, first movie and we don't really get that again but sticky rice is hugely important to this first movie part of why sticky rice is so important is because it's one of these things that's sort of so easily like knocked off course and you know of course we see that he's trying to buy this massive quantity of sticky rice and is basically being shortchanged by the rice distributor <laughs> leading to you know more hilarity it's one of the reoccurring motifs it's the idea that as the films progress there's a certain expectation that the audience knows what the weaknesses are and they seem to work until they di- don't you know set up a barrier of rice oh that's going to work until he just steps right over it or you know pop a uh, scroll on the vampire's head oh it seems to work until it doesn't it's it, as the only the rules are only there for the setup uh, to provide a 
setup for the comedy. And I do like how the films got uh, increasingly more elaborate in their ways of dispatching the uh, chief, Jiang Shi, up until the point that they were literally shoving all kinds of poisons and rice-infused snakes down the gullet of one of them in a oh, it's a totally, uh, totally uh, convincing rubber mask that they were using while they were doing that, by the way. That scene is amazing and that's one of the things that i love so much about this series is like i grew up watching a lot of western vampire movies and i love them and like i said i love the hammer series but in general the hammer series and the universal movies they kind of do the same thing it's sort of like they figured out okay this formula works we're not going to deviate too much from this formula and Mr. Vampire has the opposite approach where it's like by the time you get to Crazy Safari, they're launching a vampire out of an airplane with a parachute. (laughs) The one person who should be able to fall out of an airplane safely, but yet they put a parachute on him. Well, you have to respect the ancestral remains, right? Yeah. (laughs) And that's what so much of this series is, is this idea of these ancestors and the uneasy spirits. It's very, I mean, it mixes a lot of stuff that we are familiar with here in the West. It mixes the idea of ghosts and this whole thing of like, if I was wrong before I die, you know, if I have that, literally it's the last breath inside of me, like I haven't completed stuff, then my spirit is uneasy. So I come back as this animated corpse. It mixes zombies in, you know, the whole idea of these unstoppable pretty much creatures and especially when they start to mass as as hordes of these jiangshi then it, that's when for me anyway it starts to get a little bit scary they've got vampire type teeth but they i guess they do bite sometimes but the whole idea of them making other people into vampires it's there but it's not necessarily always there it's not that whole like idea of passing on the vampirism we get that at times like in this first movie uh one of mr vampire's assistants gets bitten and then he starts to turn into a vampire but sometimes you get bit and you die or you get stabbed by those incredibly spiky nails that they have but I will say the first time I ever saw a Jiangxi, picture this in your mind, listener, if you haven't seen one of these before, arms out straight, long, long fingernails, dressed in traditional Qing Dynasty garb, and then hopping. And that, the hop, is what really disarmed the first time I saw these, because I was like, anything that hops around like this is inherently funny, and I think think we're supposed to know that watching these movies and sometimes they hop very little steps and sometimes these guys can almost hop over buildings so we become like the hulk a little bit and then yeah completely unstoppable until you just slap a uh, (laughs) a little yellow piece of paper onto the forehead and they stop and then they'll respond to ringing a bell and then that whole idea i mean because even though we're saying these movies are very different from movie there are certain elements that will come back including the guy who is on a like a, a cattle run of vampires the one priest who's throwing hell money up in the air screaming out you know vampires coming this way and ringing his bell and then marching a whole line of vampires from one place to another that image comes back time and again and it's a fantastic image and it speaks to one of the proposed origins for the Jiangxi uh, myth. And th- there's some debate as to whether or not this is the official, but it makes for an interesting story. And that's all I'm really interested in. But they were talking about how in the, in the past when there were 
was a greater amount of travel within China, that you would have people traveling far distances from their homes in order to find work. However, when they died, it was considered bad luck, bad karma, whatever you want, to be buried away from your ancestral home, so they would have to be transported back. And one form of body transportation that I read about was they would string up these bodies wrapped up upright in between bamboo poles, and then they would have two carriers carry the poles of bodies. And as the bamboo swayed, it gave the illusion that these uh, corpses were hopping as they went along. As I said, there's some debate whether or not that is an act, a, a true story or just you know a little anecdote that arose out of mythology throughout the years. But it makes for a fun and neat little um, connection to the whole Zhangxi hopping myth. I know they are comical, but I also think they're there's sort of this like uncanny kind of eeriness about it. Like the first time I saw Mr. Vampire, I remember being so sort of drawn to that image of the the sort of line of vampires, which of course I think it's Mr. Vampire three becomes like a conga line, <laughs> but. <laughs> It, they never really bother to explain why, like, he keeps calling them his clients, and they never really bother to explain, like, why he's sort of beholden to this little line of vampires and where he's going with them. And I like that the series as a whole doesn't really feel too burdened by over-explaining things. And you can't help but wonder if perhaps it didn't explain that because it, it assumed the audience would already be familiar with this, the idea of the Taoist priest returning these bodies. And that's one thing I find interesting when watching these films in regards to Western vampire films is that the common motif we find within Western vampires is that of malignancy or pestilence, the idea that they are something to be eradicated, destroyed. Whereas the prevalent vibe when one takes a Taoist approach is that these things exist due to inbound balances of nature, whether it be feng shui, whether it be any other of those principles that are all wrapped up in the great miasma that is Taoism. And rather than, than destroying them, the role of the Taoist priest is to simply restore balance. And that's why you can counteract the infection of the Jiangxi within people by restoring the, them to their proper balance. Now, granted, as the films went along, they got more concerned with just kind of blowing up the vampires in spectacular <laughs> ways. But at least, at least initially, there was that sort of acknowledgement of these things exist because things are out of order. We are going to set things back to right. It interests me the way in which these particular sort of like Golden Harvest Zhangxi films provide such a contrast with the Shaw Brothers horror films, which are way more concerned with gore and kind of like you were saying, this idea like that the Western vampire is somehow corrupted and needs to be destroyed and is kind of grotesque. And has these sort of body horror elements. A lot of those Shaw Brothers films have those and really fixate on this kind of like notion of pestilence as something that's physical as well as spiritual that doesn't show up as much in these Mr. Vampire films. And I don't know if it's because the focus is more comedic, but I just always found that an interesting contrast Feng Shui is definitely one of Mr. Vampire's jobs. Like, he's got a few things that he does. One is making sure that the Feng Shui of his area is 
in balance, but then he usually gets called upon by other people, like, come on out, there's either a problem or I'm you know, building a new house or doing something, and we need to get the feng shui right. So he comes out and we'll make sure that everything is good with that. And then he's, he's kind of a Chinese ghostbuster, too, and there's even a movie called that. And he'll come out and find that spirits are already there and he has to take care of that kind of stuff. And yeah, the idea of let's move the spirits away from the house and take them and put them to rest or put them in these black jars where they, you know, I guess will hang out for another 49 years and then maybe dissipate or they, he just has all of these urns with spirits inside of them. So yeah, he's got a lot of different things that he's doing, but almost all of it is about the balance and restoring the balance. And I, it took me until watching this series again to see how many times that Lam Ching Ying will strike his foot on the ground, trying to get the power of the earth to move into him. And there's a lot of that. And then a lot of the idea of the moon and the sun. And uh, there's even one movie that starts off with like a lunar eclipse. So that suddenly throws everything off whack because there's too much moon going on or whatever. So really just causes a lot of havoc. And you actually brought up an interest, another interesting element that pops up in so many of these movies beyond the Jiangxi, the prevalence of ghosts that show up in these and per, and particularly how they manifest in the form of amorous female ghosts. Oh, yeah. And it's it, it, it's always funny to me when I watch certain um a lot of Chinese films, just how uh, sex is handled so frequently that they can be the mo- the most violent, gory, and just action filled movies and at all. And yet, when it comes time to sexuality, it's usually either completely downplayed, non-existent, or just played for comedic effect. Um, th- they do that. They play with that a little bit in the first Mister Vampire movie, and it seems to be the only uh, char- women characters that have any sort of sexual autonomy or sexual interests are perceived as. Cor- Corruptive ghosts. I don't know what that has to say about any, anything deeper, but it is rather interesting. I actually really love that they felt throughout all the Mr. Vampire films, they feel the need to include these kind of recurring subplots like the female ghost and in the later films, my favorite, the vampire child. But I just love that. The, in all the films, the female ghost or even the the female sort of like demon marauder lady in Mr. Vampire 3, they're given such – their sequences to me are some of the most stylized in any of the films. And they're really beautiful. They do such a great job with all the makeup. But it fascinates me that they're always the most dynamic female characters. Yeah, those female ghosts, and sometimes they're fox spirits, sometimes they're just female ghosts, sometimes they're secretly hideous, or they have some sort of deformation going on. If you see them in the right light, half their face is messed up, or other times it's their whole face. But yeah, those characters come back so often and sometimes they'll just come back as almost like a cameo there's just one moment where richard ing is looking for his two vampire pals in Vamp- uh, mr vampire 3 and he unleashes one of these spirits and i'm like is she gonna come back or not and she just 
disappears. And that's the thing, too, is so many of these movies are told in this real episodic nature. Like, it feels very much like these hour and a half, we're watching like a, a almost a, a sitcom or something, because we'll get different episodes happening, and sometimes the elements will come back later in the film, and sometimes they just are there to be there. So we might have something happen at the beginning, and then it might return in the third act, or it just might not ever. But... And they almost always follow this formula, too, of Mr. Vampire is this put-upon person. I call him Mr. Vampire, though that's not his name in any of these movies. It's just easier, and especially, and I will say, like, the subtitles are very confusing sometimes, and the subtitles, sometimes they will call Lam Ching Ying, Lam Ching Ying. And sometimes he'll be master this, master that, etc. So I'm just going to call him Mr. Vampire just for the ease of it. But he is almost saddled, almost always saddled with two pretty incompetent uh, <laughs> apprentices. I guess because doing the work that Mr. Vampire does is not seen as being glamorous stuff. So he always almost always ends up with two guys. One is usually more handsome than the other one. One is more uh, skilled than the other one. But there's always that conflict between these two guys, and they're always doing a one-upsmanship in order to get in the good graces of Mr. Vampire. And they almost always screw up, and they almost always bring about some of the conflict inside of the story. So there's, like I said, there's that formula. There's the pretty female ghost that shows up. There's that piece of the formula. And then there's usually a big mean vampire who ends up being the, 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 we're ending up in the third act with that though in the third movie, like you were saying, there's the woman bandit, I guess she is. And she's the big bad of that one. So they do switch it up, but there is, there are some, formulate pieces that come back and get moved around throughout these. Yeah, and I also would appreciate, as the films go along, how the Jiangxi themselves almost start uh, getting Godzilla-ized insofar that they start out as the villain and then eventually start becoming more and more sympathetic as they go along. It's as if if they, you know, they're leaning into the popularity of them, and so they're getting presented in more and more of a heroic light. Down to the fact that uh, when we get to vampire versus vampire, our uh, Lam Ching Ying has essentially adopted one, uh, which is like my dream. I, I wish that somebody would <laughs> would do a sitcom just about the adventures of this vampire child. I don't know. I wasn't too uh, impressed and uh, enjoying the uh, montage of the vampire child playing with the little kids and Mr. Vampire, too. I oh, man. <laughs> I so love that. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it so much, which is super weird because I don't have children. I don't really like children. I don't particularly like children characters in movies. So I have no. No idea why I'm so obsessed with the vampire child in, in this series, but, or even the ghost child in what is it? I think the second, the third one. Mm, that, was, the ghost child I did like. They're just so adorable, and I, it's almost like by vampire versus vampire, he's just sort of resigned himself that the vampire child is too cute for him to kill and could actually be helpful. And I don't think they bother to. Explain in Mr. Vampire 2 why the vampire child is so much friendlier than the adult vampires and why he seems to have so much more of a personality. I think they were just trying to do their own version of E.T. Which I also hate E.T. So it doesn't, <laughs> it 
it, it doesn't make any sense that I love this character so much, but it's just, I, I guess I feel like it's one of those elements that almost sort of contrasts the kind of sexualized female ghost where it does have that sort of episodic and now for something completely different, we're going to show you this other kind different story that kind of ties into the overall narrative. Yeah. Mr. Vampire too. So I guess we're moving on to Mr. Vampire too, because otherwise we're going to be here all day because like over, over the last few months, I haven't watched 25 movies, but there are about 25 movies where Lam Ching Ying is in them as like a, uh, some sort of a Taoist character or some sort of a, a, an incarnation of Mr. Vampire. Maybe not that many because I'm also uh, in my list of stuff that I also have encounters in the Dead and the Deadly, like trying to get myself a little bit of background on this. So let's say there's a score of films that play into this kind of stuff. And those are just the ones with Lam Ching Ying. So there are other ones that play with these elements well, and there are knockoff ones. And so I will say like, let's take a little fork, stick a fork in the road here and say, after Mr. Vampire came out, it was so successful that then it sprung all of these different knockoff films and different films that were playing with the same thing, including a film called new Mr. Vampire. So we've got, Mr. Vampire going along one road and we've got new Mr. Vampire going along another road. And eventually those two roads will cross, which makes for a really confusing time. So yeah, Mr. Vampire comes out. Eventually Mr. Vampire two comes out. Mr. Vampire two doesn't really feel like a sequel whatsoever because all of a sudden we're jumping from 1920s era when Mr. Vampire is set. It's after the Qing dynasty has fallen. It's now we're, we're starting to, we're not, obviously Mao is not quite there, but we're, we're starting to have this kind of revolution type thing. And then we jump ahead to 1980, what, five or six when the movie comes out. And now we're in present day times. And uh, and you don't even know that, or at least I didn't know that for the first part of it, other than the way that some of these people dress. But because we start with these adventurers and they go in and they find these three corpses of these vampires, a mom and dad and a baby vampire. And there's lots of stuff that goes on with that. And then we have the, the baby vampire escape, go on its little adventure and meet these two kids. And yeah, it kind of becomes like an ET type of thing. It's 36 minutes until we're brought Lam Ching Ying. So it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I guess this guy is in this movie. I guess there is a reason why it's called Miss Pirate. If I have a single complaint, it's that I think some of them, especially some of the later films, wait until the last half an hour to really bring things together. Like Vampire versus Vampire kind of does the same thing where you have this sort of ongoing narrative for the first 60 minutes, but the vampire action doesn't really kick off until the last act, which makes me a little sad. And it plays, I guess, into that like I was saying before, like TV episode kind of thing. It feels like here are the continuing adventures that are going on. And yeah, sometimes there's this happening and sometimes there's that happening, but yeah, it takes that movie in particular. It takes a long time to finally get going. Like we spend a lot of time with those nuns and stuff and it's like, okay, let's go. But yeah, the, the, the second Mr. Vampire film does take forever. And then what, and it's really, there's maybe what, like four 
big set pieces, not even, because once they are introducing Mr. Vampire and his two incompetent assistants, one of them follows uh, uh, one of the guys who was bitten by the mom or dad vampire, follows them back to their lair, and then it becomes basically it becomes an old Bugs Bunny cartoon. Do you yeah. remember the one? Right? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Where they break the ether, and then it's like... And that's the thing with the film being spread out like it is, where you again, you have the the subplot with the archaeologist, you have the subplot with the child vampire, and then finally you get Lam Ching Ying coming in with his own assistance. It really feels like this all over film that does manage to come together and does have a pretty decent fire stunt uh, in in its climax or close on two. But it does uh, it lacks the focus that what we had in the original Mr. Vampire. But. I kind of, I don't want to say I like Mr. Vampire 2 more than Mr. Vampire, but I think I I like it just as much because it's such a, it's like they're both comedies, but it's such a different kind of comedy. I mean, the first time I watched it, it took me a little bit to recognize Lam Ching Ying because he looks so different. And I found that sort of modern update kind of jarring and those those plot elements like where the archaeologist is basically trying to sell these vampire corpses on the black market. <laughs> <laughs> but it just it's it's almost like somebody made this big list full of ideas they could include, wrote down each one on a piece of scrap paper threw them into a hat and they pulled them out willy nilly and were like, all right, we're going to have a slow motion scene. Let's figure out how to do that. (laughs) We're going to have vampires like chasing people from room to room in a house. And they're basically just going back and forth between different rooms sold. (laughs) It makes no sense, but I love it. And I was actually excited when I started watching it, realizing that it was going to be a contemporary. I am a fan of magic cop and it, while it doesn't balance those sorts of archaic elements with the modernity, with the same kind of uh, sure hand that Magic Cop did, it was still cool to see hopping vampires in a more modern setting. I have to admit that I have kind of a crush on the mother vampire as well. I think she's really attractive. Pauline Yuhuan Wang. And she ends up showing up in a bunch of these movies, too. So I'm kind of glad. Like I said, you get the same actors just switching roles. And I want to say that... One of the guys from the first movie ends up directing other movies. Lam Ching Ying ends up directing some of these. So they're all just kind of moving pieces around. Like Fat Chung, who is the professor that discovers these guys, he was in, I think it was uh, Encounters of the Spooky Kind. That's the moment that in this movie cracks me up, is when we finally, finally, third act, like maybe even towards the end of the third act, (laughs) we finally get Mr. Vampire showing up we've got the mom and dad vampire and the baby vampire in the house and where the the two little chunky children live and their dad and the and uh the cops are outside and he shows up and he's going to save the day and they're just like who the heck do you think you are and he's like well first i had encounters of the spooky kind with my master samo and that you know and <laughs> he just totally breaks that that 
reality barrier and gives his his acting credentials basically and they're just like okay yeah and i think he even says like i'm lam ching ying and they're just like okay and sends him in and then one guy's like who's lam ching ying and he's i don't know but this guy's crazy enough to go inside so let's let him and yeah that's the moment where it really makes me happy and then it's also weird too because are they going to kill the vampire child or are they going to save the vampire child because it feels like he really should be there with these kids at the end because he's kind of become their pet. But yeah, and I don't know. Personally, El Goro, I love the montage of the vampire kid uh, saving these little kids from bullies. And when he sees the um, the blood bank and goes in, then you see him again. And he's licking his lips. I mean, it's goofy, but I really kind of dig that. And it's so fun, too. <laughs> and it speaks about refugees. That it does. Uh, I think it's the high-pitched singing during that montage that just gets to me. Well, he could be squeaking. That's true. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, you were talking about how attractive uh, the uh, mother Mr. Vampire, or the mother vampire was, but uh, she's not very much for conversation, is she? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And that's one of the things, too, that's really spooky for me, is when they are just, like, making those noises, and noises are really, um, like, echo-chambered kind of thing. I mean, that's another good thing that we have with these. Like, yeah, we don't, as the vampires, you were saying, as we go along, the vampires start to get more human and emotional and stuff, especially, like, in uh, Crazy Safari. Like, there's some real, like, the vampire is not mindless in that one. But yeah, they never really become too conversational other than the little kid vampire who's got the quote unquote talking hat in um, uh, Vampire v. Vampire, which I really appreciate that talking hat, especially when he's got the picture of Lam Ching Ying on it. Yeah, maybe that's why I love them so much is because they're sort of like living cartoons and there's something about like you can definitely feel that sort of Ghostbusters influence or that sort of same kind of Ghostbusters type feeling. But in a certain way, these kind of remind me of sort of live action Scooby-Doo episodes in a way that I find absolutely sort of perfect and endearing and like cinematic comfort food. I can definitely see that, particularly when we get to Mr. Vampire 3 and we have the two ghost characters that can bend these these physical laws and it just lends itself to the comedy so much more. Oh, my God. That scene in the restaurant is <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Yeah, that is wonderful. Yeah, three starts off with uh, Richard Ng as this fake Taoist priest. I guess he's a Taoist priest, but he just has he's lost the thread a little bit. Yeah, and he has strangely enough the the, the plot of this movie seems to be the plot of another movie that came after it. He uses these two spirits to haunt houses, and then he'll go in and pretend that he's exercising the house from these two spirits. So, yeah, it's very much like The Frighteners. Um, though I can't say that the whole movie is like The Frighteners, but at least that beginning part, that idea of this guy, this fake, who's using these two spirits, you know, he does have some spiritual ability. And then when he finds that the one house he goes to is actually haunted, there's some good comedy and good action going on there with the two spirits who... I don't know if these spirits, like at first I was thinking they're father and son, but then I was thinking they're brothers, but then maybe they're not related. One of the most confusing things, as a, a little bit of an aside, one of the most confusing things when it comes to watching these Hong Kong films is that 
as a term of respect, you're always calling people uncle or auntie. And sometimes you will call someone a brother who's not a brother. So you don't know if this person actually is an auntie or an uncle or a brother or a cousin. They could not be related at all. It could just be a sign of respect. And it feels like such a logical extension of the whole Taoist conceit. We know that they have a the ability to control or exert control over the spiritual forces. So why wouldn't there be one that was unscrupulous and would actually use them in order to con people? And Richard Ng, he is fantastic. I really like that guy a lot. And he's got that great face. He's His face, I know that he was in stuff with, uh, what's the guy's name? Ricky Hui, the guy that played Man Choi from the first mm. movie, who, who the apprentice who actually looks old. Older than Mr. Vampire does, even when Mr. Vampire's got the gray in his hair. But like those two guys have these great faces, and the uh, the again wonderful additions to movies. Well, and that's one of the things that I find so kind of impressive is that instead of being increasingly diluted, the way you know they're not, I guess, direct sequels, but the way kind of quote unquote sequels are for a lot of Western horror series. Here, it's like they really seem to go out of their way to include these kind of really just like likable, endearing, but kind of comically flawed characters. I mean, even his sort of client slash assistant in Crazy Safari, like the kid who speaks English, he I like I found myself liking him so much. And when I started watching the movie, I think I kind of assumed he would be sort of forgettable. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, these even though these guys are incompetent, you're not yelling at them. You're not like, what are you doing here? You know, there's almost always you can tell why they're doing what they're doing. And usually it's because they're horn dogs. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's endearing. <laughs> it is endearing. It's very endearing. We start off in one movie with Richard Ng doing this whole, you know, Frighteners kind of thing. And he ends up going to this little town, and then all of a sudden we're in a different movie. It's almost like we're in an American werewolf in London for a few <laughs> seconds, because he goes into this pub, and they're just like, what are you doing here? And all crazy about stuff, and that's when we're introduced to to Mr. Vampire coming in. And then there's this weird cut, and all of a sudden we're seeing these uh, riders in the forest you know, coming in, and there becomes this huge battle that happens in this forest. And I have no idea what's going on. I just know there are bad people, and there are the villagers. And eventually, that's what leads us into like our third act plot is this whole idea that these bad guys, these raiders who are into black magic, and they uh, there's all these things of like spiritual possession going on. And I love that when spirit when people are possessed, they're not actually possessed. These guys aren't possessed. It's the spirits are behind them, and their feet are resting on these guys' feet, and then they're moving their arms around and stuff, and walking with them in front of them and then so if you you know can do the special thing where you put the leaves above your eyes or whatever then you can see the spirits behind them so it's great and then that's where uh pauline wong shows up again and she's the head bandit black magic practitioner and she becomes our big baddie in this one though there's some great scenes of like the two bad spirits uh, being hanged in this movie it's like oh man and i love the introduction of the bandits i mean it felt like something straight out of a blind dead movie the way they slow mode rolled into it and it definitely felt like they were making a concentrated effort to up the kung fu quotient in this movie that there was a lot more action in this film compared to mr vampire 2 and with the introduction of the two ghost characters it expanded the possibilities of what they could do with the action and 
as well as with the comedy. And honestly, this was one of my favorites of the series just for its ability to blend these action and comedic elements and just the pure fantasy of it. It was off the chain, but but it never felt like it was spiraling out of control. I am terrible at picking favorites sort of in general. But I think I love this almost as much as one and two. The sequences with Pauline Wong's character fighting in the inn are maybe some of my favorite, like actual kind of battle scenes in any of the series. And I just love that that character is included. I mean, that sort of demonic black magic practicing female character shows up in some Shaw Brothers movies, like there's this amazing character that I'm obsessed with in the Magic Blade who's called Devil's Grandma. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I remember her. I love Devil's Grandma. And in my mind, Pauline Wong's character is like Devil's Grandma of the early years. It's like she's <laughs> still young and is riding a horse and chopping people's heads off. But the balance that they're able to strike between like genuinely laugh out loud comedy and some of those really impressive battle scenes. I just, I love this one so much. And there's, you know, our, our friend Billy Lau shows up again and he's this uh, corrupt cop. There's usually corrupt officials almost always in these movies as well, or officials who just don't give a shit. And he shows up in a subplot and that's the whole idea of covering yourself in soot. And so that the ghosts, you can see ghosts and they can't see you. So there's a lot of that that happens in some other movies as well, as far as can you see the spirits or not see the spirits. And that also, yeah, leads to a, a pretty good, like I was saying, as far as like pulling the hair and pretending to be the other person manipulating their body. Well, in this one, a spirit comes up and pretend, you know, gets behind Billy Lau and starts doing all these things, making gestures at women and stuff, so that, which are very inappropriate, very Brett Kavanaugh-ish. So <laughs> it's, um, it, it, there's, uh, obviously Brett Kavanaugh was possessed by an evil spirit. That's all He I'm just saying. likes his so, beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. Sometimes probably had too many beers and sometimes other people had too many beers we like beer still like beer we like beer i love when billy lau covers himself in soot and he wears that weird outfit where he looks like well he looks like per ubu or he looks like he escaped from the truth faith video from new order it's just like <laughs> what are you wearing <laughs> I, nice pool yeah i didn't even put that together until right now but never i now i'm not ever going to be able to unsee that <laughs> And then later on, later on, Richard Ng uh, plays the same uh, trick. And, um, well, we definitely saw a different side of Richard Ng in uh, that particular (laughs) sequence. (laughs) He spends almost the entire third act naked, which I really appreciate. (laughs) He does. Oh, man. Yeah, this it's a great, great movie. There's a lot of good stuff going on. There's some silly comedy, but there's also, like, again, this is spooky movies. And I did have to appreciate, like, they there was a, a, a line in here. They're talking. The line just stood out so much that I had to Google it because I was like, what? there's a meaning to this. Because they're talking about things, and one of the apprentices is like, do you mean uh, one, co- one country, two systems? Oh, yeah. like, li- God, that sounds that familiar. line stood up for me as well, and I had to I had to look it up. It was them reaching in for some political commentary there. Yeah, very unexpected, and we have to remember that this was pre nineteen ninety seven, so Hong Kong could still make a lot of political jokes in here. 
in the reading that you provided for us and in the various resources for doing this episode, there was that very interesting article in Global Cinema by Stephanie Lamb, and she was speaking to some of the political themes that pop up in so many of these movies. And, expl- and in her thesis, it was the idea that the Jiangxi represented a sort of embracing of national Chinese identity, especially with this looming merger between Hong Kong and the mainland. And that kind of fits in also to your uh, conceit that you were talking about of the corrupt official, how so many so many of them are presented as almost being colonial powers and how these films were sort of po- poking fun of that authority while reaffirming a the authority of traditional Chinese mysticism personified by the Taoists. And it was funny with um, to see it play out in Mr. Vampire 3 because it almost felt like they were making fun of that that very concept because they were talking about how these two things can't really exist and, you know, these these things must be in harmony and they can't be separate. And then somebody just throws out that political line, very anachronistic, but would have been uh, definitely would have gotten a laugh out of the audiences at the time. It seems surprisingly kind of bold. And I, I love the way that these films sort of become at least the first four in the Mr. Vampire series become kind of increasingly savage towards that bureaucratic government official type character. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, to the point of Mr. Vampire in 1992, which we'll talk about in a little bit here, where he's basically on that fence between being a Jiangxi himself and just being an asshole politician. <laughs> Well, and even you look at the classic depiction of the Jiangxi, it seems to be politically coded. You know, there's been various folklorists have talked about how the fact that they tend to dress in the official garments of the Qing dynasty, particularly the Manchu, it is sort of a, a coded critique against that class, uh, particularly as the years would go along, viewing them as being a corrupt soul-draining entity. And it's funny that, that uh, the article – by Stephanie Lam was positing the figure of the Jiangxi as a Chinese nationalist icon when in before it was sort of a coded political attack and what they considered to be an invading force, the Manchus. So when I was reading that original Asian Eye issue all those years ago, I remembered hearing that not all Mr. Vampire films were equal. Oh, no. As I'm re-watching all of these movies, I'm like, okay, now there's Mr. Vampire 1, 2, 3. For sure, I've seen those. I've seen Exorcist Master. I've seen Vampire vs. Vampire. I've seen one Eyebrow Priest, which is the same, I think, as Vampire vs. Vampire. So you have all these names being thrown out. You don't really know what's going on. And then there's this whole idea of new Mr. Vampire. So I'm like, okay, well, which one was the one I shouldn't watch? And when I finally put in Mr. Vampire 4, I realized this is the movie I shouldn't watch because I'm like an hour into this movie and Lam Ching Ying still hasn't shown up and he never shows up. He's not in this movie whatsoever. And it's this weird like fight between Buddhism and Taoism with these two masters and the guy who should be Lam Ching Ying is he might even be the same guy who was in the very first vampire film. Uh, the guy who's in the vampire. So it was it was um, uh, Anthony Chan. Thank you. Uh, and he's got those very uh, pronounced glasses and everything. And uh, as I'm watching this movie, I'm just like, I don't really give a shit what's going on in this film. So I'm not down with Mr. Vampire 4 is what I'm trying to say. 
I'm a bit more sympathetic towards it, mostly because I really enjoy Anthony Chan, and I also really enjoy Wu Ma going back to um, Chinese Ghost Story. So to see those two guys going at each other and just this sort of one-upmanship between their two traditions, I was having fun with that. And again, it does have a pretty spectacular vampire kill at the end. Is that the one where they're spreading the the goop on the floor? Yes. After you watch about 15 or so of these movies, they all start to run together. <laughs> that, was the, that, was, that, was the one, that also was the one with the fake head and the snake, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like you said, they sort of blend together. Well, because the poor... that So that's the only one that has like a female apprentice, and they make that sort of like horrible boob-grabbing joke. and <laughs> But... That one, I'm really on the fence about that one because there are moments that I thought were sort of laugh out loud funny in an unexpected way. And I love the sequence with the the snake and feeding it into the vampire. But I really was, like I said earlier, it it just feels like a sort of small tragedy that (laughs) Lam Ching Ying is not there. And it's another one of those movies where it feels like there's one plot for 60 minutes and then it's a vampire movie for the last 30. And I felt like this sort of back and forth between the two rival masters just went on for way too long. And there were parts where I was thinking to myself, like, can Zhangxi show up like for the love of God? <laughs> but it's not. I think people should watch it. It's it's funny. Yeah, and I will say the fight that they had between uh, Chin Karlok and Yun Hua, who plays a very um, gay-coded character oh in this movie, shall we say. <laughs> coded? There was no, coding going I, on I was there? being generous. Uh, he is a flaming <laughs> stereotype. Uh, but Yun Hua does that. He does that in a lot of his movies. But he's also a spectacular martial artist, as was Chin Karlok, and I love the little fight they had with it. Again, that balance of the comedy and the action that in that sequence was one of the better in the entire series. Yeah, he's great in that role, and I think that sort of ties into what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the kind of political subtext, because it seemed... So anyone who hasn't watched a movie where there's some kind of offensive gay stereotype and sees this for the first time, their head's going to explode. But I mean, it seemed to me like it was more that they were mocking his political position because isn't he supposed to be some sort of like traveling prince? Well, he he was the attendant to the prince because the oh, prince was a little kid. The attendant to the prince. But yeah. then that scene where, he, where they're like, <laughs> where he's sort of like, he gets afraid of the vampire and the prince has to jump in front of him and the prince is sort of defending him for a minute. And then the kid's just kind of being thrown around in that scene. It's so well done. Well, I love at the very end as well, where they're seeing the vampire dissolve and everybody's looking for comfort. And Chin Karlok picks up the young prince and then immediately sets him down so he could comfort the uh, Loletta Lee character instead. (laughs) Made me laugh. No, it's not as bad as i made it out to be there are some good chuckles in that one but i've heard a couple of people say that that one is their favorite because they think it's the funniest and hearing anyone say that it just makes me want to cry a little like how can the one without lam ching ying be your favorite it's that's not a real thing just to be completist that is also it's not necessarily referred to as mr vampire for all the time it's usually referred to as mr vampire saga which 
is a confusing thing. I mean, that's the whole thing. So I talked earlier about that detour where we had Mr. Vampire and then there was a split and there was new Mr. Vampire. Well, that detour has still been going on. There has been new Mr. Vampire and new Mr. Vampire 2. And when we come back after the break, we'll talk about new Mr. Vampire 3, which is on a crash course for the proper Mr. Vampire series as much as there can be. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld. 
The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. the Mr. Vampire films. So yeah, there is new Mr. Vampire 3, aka Mr. Vampire 1992, aka Mr. Vampire 5. And I am shocked that I didn't ever see this movie before. I think I was avoiding this one thinking it was the other one. And this brings us back to Lam Ching Ying, and it even brings us back to, uh, is it Ricky Liu as uh, Man Choi is back in this one. Our poor guy from the first movie that started to turn into a vampire and really seemed like he was doomed in that movie, but apparently he survived. So we're back with that, and we get to learn a little bit of Mr. Vampire's backstory and all of his romantic assignations because he seems quite a player in this movie. Which, it's shocking that that was never a plot before. How? I mean, he's so charismatic, and they kind of touch on that in Vampire vs. Vampire, where he accidentally like lands on top of the nun and is walking around <laughs> the convent without pants on. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there one too where the the female the pretty female ghost falls in love with him and then when she tries to go for him at the end that's like when we get our freeze frame of him running yes. away. 
Almost all these movies ended with either a freeze frame of somebody running away or a montage of like things that we've seen in this movie. There's one that ends with um, a mistake reel, which I really enjoyed. That's one of the things I like the most about Jackie Chan movies is those errors that they do. It's the, the, the end credit sequence kind of um, Cannibal Run-esque really um appreciate some of the the freeze frames i mean it just it, it again it adds that 70s um uh, sitcom type feel to it the only problem is police squad has ruined me for freeze frames so i keep expecting people to move around but it was interesting in Mr. Vampire 92 that they decided to just go for a straight sequel to uh, Mr. Vampire. Prior to this it felt like they were more of an anthology series, but the idea to go back and just say, okay, well, we're going to uh, actually revisit these characters as we called them in the one. And that was an interesting approach for them. And I like that they're not afraid to do that. And they don't seem to care. Like, all right, this is the fifth one. All right, now we're going to do the sequel. Because you just, you love the character so much that it almost doesn't matter. And it's also kind of like, thank God they returned to him and didn't try to do a fifth one without him. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that would have been bad. Yeah, and so we've got uh, some of our familiar faces back. We have a official who, like I said, has been bitten by a vampire, and he's in the process of changing. So as he walks, he will do like a little hop in his step as he's walking along. And at first I was like, what is this guy's problem? Until he gets home and he holds out his hands and he's scratching his hands and we see the long fingernails that he has. So I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. And so we've got that going on. We have this whole interesting of what they call the holy babies, which are babies that haven't been carnated after three times. And so they, uh, they're, they're basically like just kind of spirits hanging around, though there's at least one bad one. And that's the really crux of our film is this bad one. But we get introduced to this character, Birdie, who is basically like the female Mr. Vampire. And I love Birdie, especially when she ends up beating up one of her clients because she says that he's possessed and just kicks the shit out of this guy. He's fantastic. Yeah. It's also surprising to me that it took five movies to get a female version of that character. And she's so enamored with uh, Mr. Vampire to the point where she ends up tying him up and is trying to seduce him by having someone spray her t-shirt from outside and... <laughs> And the way that they like add the fake blurring to her her shirt is hilarious, and that he ends up throwing up for three days afterwards <laughs> is great. And again, again, it kind of speaks to the weird sort of chasteness that you find in so many of these movies that uh, they can they can go as violent as they want often, but for some reason nudity was verboten, <laughs> unless it was you know male uh, rear nudity that was okay. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Plenty of <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question since uh, you've watched a lot more of the spinoffs and made in the wake of Mr. Vampire. Did they ever make a f uh, fully female fronted one? Not that I'm aware of. At least not one that Lam Ching Ying was okay. in. Do you remember one, Sam? I'm trying to think, and I'm pretty sure there's not one. That's Unless disappointing. There's something super recent. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, in general, female characters are not protagonists in those films. Yeah, it's, that's unfortunate, because I definitely could see a young Michelle Yeoh definitely pull off the uh, Lam Ching Ying role. Well, and kick the shit out of everyone, anyone who puts a toe out of line. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, one arched eyebrow. Though I don't think the monobrow looks too good on females. Ah, I, I say lean into it. If you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> she would be. She would be like the Frida Kahlo of Jiangxi movies. <laughs> so not only do we have Birdie, but then. It feels like Little Dragon, the corrupt official who's turning into a vampire, it feels like his wife was a, a thing with Mr. Vampire in the past. Am I reading that right? That's what I assumed. Again, they start the blurring is coming in. That's what it feels like, is that they were a thing at one point, and now she's with this guy, this real a-hole guy, and then he has to save Little Dragon at one point, because, so Little Dragon is turning into a vampire, so they, um, <laughs> they have to file the teeth off of a Jiangxi, put that in tea, and then if he drinks it, he'll be okay, which wasn't necessarily an antidote that we've seen before. Again, they're making this up as they go along. And then to add to the conflict as they're trying to file his father's teeth down, Little Dragon's father, the vampire that bit him, uh, to add to that conflict, Little Dragon has imported some sashimi and is doing this whole... <laughs> like, we've we've seen the restaurants where they have the sashimi sushi on the uh, the treadmill, right? Going around and everything, and you just pick out, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, a tapas kind of thing. Pick out the pieces that you want, etc. Well, he makes his own version of that by having three guys stand in a circle and spin around, and then Mr. Vampire, his two assistants, and Little Dragon are picking off stuff. And that adversely affects their uh, their their lower tracks um, as they're waiting for the uh, vampire to come out. It's silly and it's kind of gross and all that kind of stuff. It's very juvenile, but I found it absolutely hilarious. And I found it hilarious too when they don't know what wasabi is, and uh, Mister Vampire ends up taking a big old thing of wasabi and then tells his two guys, "Yeah, yeah, eat that. That's good." <laughs> and it also speaks to the idea of the corrupt official. You know, this time uh, drawing from foreign influences just to kind of code him a little bit more negatively in this film. Yeah, I kind of actually wondered about that in the first film, how, you know, that that sort of plot is the 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 wealthy guy wants Mr. Vampire to move his father's corpse. And there's the whole thing about him forcing them to go to this kind of Western style tea house where they're or coffee house where they're drinking coffee and they don't know what they're doing. I kind of wondered if that was supposed to make the official or the businessman, whatever, I think he's a businessman, seem more negative because he's so kind of westernized. I think, well, and I've seen that trope play out in other films. Um, I think that was a reoccurring one in Once Upon a Time in China as well. And it it was just one of those, it it feels like one of those things that not necessarily negative, but uh, it is... It is cast, casting aspersions on those sorts of influences. And if nothing else, it's showing how the people that embrace those, they're completely unable to deal with the, the things that traditional Chinese methods can can overcome. It almost seems like those characters are being portrayed as maybe a little decadent. I mean, the the daughter – so the first time I saw Mr. Vampire, I was so confused about the businessman's daughter because – Because at first her character, you know, talks about how she wears all this makeup and she's dressed in Western style clothing and clearly cares a lot about her appearance. And then there's this sudden like this sudden shift where 
she suddenly is not wearing makeup, has a completely different personality and is in traditional clothing. And it took me two watches to realize that was the same, supposed to be the same character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, the the rescuing of uh, traditional women from Western decadent influences. I mean, hell the the first, one of the early scenes you have uh, her with uh, Chin Su Ho, who confuses her for a prostitute, which is hilarious. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Especially when she's talking about, oh, no, I'm going to make sure all the little girls around here uh, do it. I'm never retiring. I'm going to do this until I die. (laughs) I started when I was 12. My mother taught me. (laughs) It's so dumb, but you have to love it. Well, it's almost like the uh, it's almost like a who's on first style joke. <laughs> and I'm so glad that it translates. Oh, my it God. translates so well. And the scene where she's where the other assistant walks in and he keeps trying to say the name of the brothel. <laughs> the first assistant is, has realized his mistake and just keeps trying to talk over him. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Yeah, yeah, that, there's another good one. Uh, I think it's in um, Exorcist Master, where the Catholic priest or the Christian priest is meeting everybody in town, and it's like, well, this guy runs the gambling hall, and this woman runs the brothel, and then they are, are like, I think he's speaking a different language, because then they have to like retranslate stuff to him, and they're like, oh no, th- this woman, she sells chicken, and he's just like, oh, I love chicken. Chicken's so good. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I really liked Mr. Vampire 1992. I liked the idea of the evil woman who was possessed by the hell baby, and then she's wet nursing via blood to the expectant mother who was Lam Ching Ying's, Mr. Vampire's former flame, and all that stuff going on. The way that she takes out the, th- the in this one, we've got the two assistants plus uh, the, uh, I guess it's the sister of the pregnant woman, kind of take them out by making them think that they're they're lost in darkness, so they're just wandering around in this room. Where are you? Where? Are you? <laughs> it's so stupid, but it really works for me. And uh, yeah, and then Birdie and Mister Vampire fighting uh, these vampires and everybody at the end. That th- that we introduce the vampires so late in this movie, but it's okay because we've got the holy babies to mess around with. Plus, then we get the vampires later on. So yeah, it. it this one really for me comes together and I was really glad that I was finally able to see it. And we've seen before that the Mr. Vampire films haven't shied away from pointed social and political commentary. So do you think that any part of vampire 92 was them kind of taking shots at the whole one child policy in China? It felt like it. Yeah. This whole idea. Cause they say like, it's a, a baby who was stillborn or aborted three times. So yeah, I think it might've been because of the whole idea of you can't only have one child and abortion is not only legal in China, but it's encouraged if you're going to, you know, if you get pregnant a second time, uh, now they're up to two children, but still children are so expensive in China. It's crazy how much money they spend on their kids with all these weekend classes and stuff. I mean, parents, the parents that I knew anyway in Shanghai, they didn't have weekends. I would say, what are you doing this weekend? And it's like, well, I'm taking my kid to music class, to to English class, to Mandarin class, to science class, to math class. I'm like, 
what, what do you mean? It's like they have all of this extra education that happens all weekend long. So it's like six hours each day. So I'm like, you don't have normal weekends over there. And that's for one kid. And it's expensive for one kid. So if you have two kids, forget about it. Kind of makes having a uh, vampire child seem more desirable. I am right there with you, Sam. It also puts into perspective the fact that in Mr. Vampire 2, the character is a single dad raising those two kids by himself. And he he seems super disorganized and he makes all these comments about how difficult it is. And I just I thought that was interesting, sort of kind of in passing, like, oh, they have a single dad character, which seemed unusual. But to think of it that way, it seems even more unusual. Yeah, as I was watching Mr. Vampire 1992, I kept thinking of like, is this Mike Pence's nightmare or is this his like dream come true, like to show how you shouldn't abort and stuff? So I really, I wasn't, I was on the fence as far as how he would interpret this film. But imagine it'd be his nightmare because without his wife, how could he speak with any other woman? <laughs> That's true. Imagine Bertie coming into the room. Oh my God. <laughs> mother (laughs) yeah and i don't think mr vampire 2 has clearly gender defined bathrooms so i think (laughs) we have a huge problem with that oh he could never watch magic cop with that bathroom (laughs) in the guy's apartment i will say there is something about the pure kitsch of that entire apartment that was i was so enamored with the way that guy was living i want blinds that separate my tub <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> and your tub right there in the middle of the room. Exactly. Oh, yeah. All one place. <laughs> if I want to, I'll do it. Yeah. So after the Mr. Vampire series was officially over, and I think sometimes even while the series was going on, there were other movies that weren't necessarily official Mr. Vampire films. So there are Mr. Vampire movies that aren't called Mr. Vampire. And sometimes Lam Chinging is playing a character so similar to Mr. Vampire that you would think that you're watching a Mr. Vampire film. And you also, you get the two incompetent assistants, the pretty ghosts, all these kind of things. So sometimes it would be called by different names. Sometimes Mr. Vampire 678, all these kind of things. So real quick, I just want to kind of hit some of the highlights of those because I think most of these movies are really worthwhile and uh, i really enjoyed so many of these like vampire versus vampire we've mentioned that several times throughout this entire discussion which is a western vampire in hong kong in this world of jiangxi and of course this is the one like this is if i were to adopt a vampire child this is the one i would want to adopt because of that cool hat and because of the way that he squeaks He's the best. And (laughs) Vampire versus Vampire, I didn't expect to love as much as I did because, again, I think it's like in in my head, I get this sort of feeling that, you know, if it's in a series and it's movie number six or number seven, like, how good can it really be? And of course, like you said, this isn't technically a Mr. Vampire film, but it might as well be. But it just takes the comedy to an even more extreme level with the interactions between Lam Ching Ying and these nuns. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think in the same way as the sort of black magic practicing bandits in the third movie, it also tries to take the kind of horror elements to a new level by incorporating that Western style vampire 
and all those bats, which are so well done. And I, I also quite enjoyed this film, though I have to say, I'm still waiting to find a film that delivers on the promise of the title, where yeah. if we had a true Western-style vampire, I'm talking aristocratic, Bela Lugosi vampire, or Christopher Lee, if we're going to go for a little bit more uh, dominant, versus a traditional Zhang Shi. I would love to see something like that. The vampire we got in here, while clearly coded to be a Western vampire, he is you know, much more bestial. He's, he's basically a, a Chinese demon in European clothing. He looked a lot like Nick cave for me or a little bit like defula as well um yeah he's he's got that like slimy euro pop type look going on sometimes i mean i know that they uh, they had western actors in these films um quite a bit especially from australia or like benny the jet or Kurtike or however you say his name would, would show up in things or that really super tall guy that would always fight Jackie Chan. So there were these actors available, but yeah, this guy, I, I don't even know if he has any lines or not. So he is more like a Jiang Shi in that he's very quiet and just really wants to cause a lot of havoc. And it's hilarious to me when those bats acting as his minion when they're shown carrying the vampire like he's standing straight up and down and they're carrying him <laughs> that is I, hilarious i wish we could see that in more western vampire movies where the vampire is just lazy as shit and makes bats do everything <laughs> no, maybe maybe in the next what we do with in the shadows Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Looking at the actor, it's a gentleman by the name of Frank Juhas, who looks like he did a quite a few of those micro-budgeted Rambo ripoffs in the 1980s. He was a Hungarian actor. Um but I, I'm looking through his filmography and I'm not seeing anything that jumps out. But there were a ton, a ton of those Rambo ripoff movies. Yeah, and they're all super ridiculous. The ones I've seen are super ridiculous. <laughs> More ridiculous than Vampire versus Vampire. I'll reach out to my friends at the Cult of Muscle. They, this, those kind of films that they're bread and butter. They may know all about Frank Juhas, for all I know. If memory serves, this movie was also known as One Eyebrowed Priest, which is what I rented it under. And we really get the eyebrow is a star in this movie. It is fantastic. And there's even a uh, a moment towards the beginning when Mr. Vampire uh, senses trouble and he says, no wonder my eyebrow twitched. <laughs> yep. yeah, I, I was wondering if I was imagining that his eyebrow seemed bigger in, in this movie. <laughs> I'm not just me. <laughs> well, Lam Ching Ying was directing it, so he's like, all right, I know exactly what works for me. I'm going to have a, the biggest eyebrow ever. <laughs> Maybe that's why it went over budget. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> I was actually reading that um, he he waived his directorial fee for this because it ended up going over budget, but he still said that he really enjoyed making this movie. Because he spent so much money on an eyebrow stylist. We were talking about Western influences and stuff. So the whole idea of the church versus the temple and all that kind of stuff and these nuns who are very chaste and all that. Uh, and just how many times like Lam Ching Ying wants to burn the church to the ground. I'm just like, yeah, all right, good. Well, <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of the handful of Japanese nunsploitation movies where they just don't understand Catholicism at all and they just they like get the general strokes of what a convent is supposed to be like but just make shit up sort of willy-nilly and this movie does the same thing <laughs> but 
the fact that he and the mother superior are just comedically thrown together in all these scenes is so good. <laughs> Again, when they're praying, they're singing hallelujah. Uh-huh. It makes oh, me laugh yeah. so much. <laughs> well, there's another one called uh, Exorcist Master, which is almost the exact same thing, where we're going to open up the church in town. Wu Ma is the priest who they bring in. And like, okay, yeah, we're going to open this up. And he's like, no, 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 don't open that up. There's bad things inside of that church. And then for them, like, yeah, it's like those sometimes they'll speak English when they're doing the prayers. So again, that kind of decadence thing that is going on. And when they say amen, they say aman every single time, which is really weird. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, again, it's like the Wu Ma character doesn't seem to understand the other characters. Like, I don't know if he speak Mandarin and they're speaking Cantonese. Sometimes it's tough to tell. So unless you're watching along and you're just like, Oh yeah. Or you can tell like that is not Lam Ching voice, you know, which is always troublesome. I know that everybody was dubbed in these movies because they shot a lot of stuff in Hong Kong MOS because most of the time they're right by the airport. So they couldn't utilize microphones, but still, you know, Lam Ching Ying's voice after a while watching this and when you would hear him speaking Mandarin, it's like, this is really kind of off. Um, Exorcist Master has very much the same thing. And in that one, everybody's either becoming Chinese vampires or Western vampires and you don't know which magic is going to work on them. But yeah, the whole idea of weird Catholic or Christian symbolism and just willy-nilly throwing it around, it, it's right there as well. And I love, the, I love the elements of the culture clash. It's one of the reasons that I enjoy Magic Cop so much, because you get him throwing down against Japanese occultism. And they also ha- have the moments where they're switching languages onto theirs, like, oh, wait a minute, they're speaking Japanese now. Which is how it's just like, what? Am I missing something? I mean, we, we talked about that when we talked about Marketa Lazarova, where like the first time I watched it, I was like, I didn't notice that they were speaking German in parts of it. I, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Magic Cop is one of my favorite films in the entire world. I love that movie. It is so good. Can we please have a follow-up episode to talk about Magic Cop? Yeah. I think so. We should talk about so Magic Cop and Haunted Cop Shop. Okay. I mean, not that not that they're necessarily related, but it's like it just deserves – it needs more. Real quick before we wrap things up, I do want to really recommend one called The Ultimate Vampire, which again is kind of an unofficial Mr. Vampire movie. And that is where we learn a lot about the Hell Police and we utilize these characters, the Hell Police. Because like I said, as we're watching these movies, we're finding stuff out. Like in Mr. Vampire 3, Richard Eng's character has these nice new outfits and then he throws them in the fire because then that's how you transfer that over to the spiritual dimension. Now his two ghost friends can wear these nice robes that were just burned up in our world. In Magic Cop, we get to see, you know, Auntie throwing money and a VCR and all this stuff into a fire, and that's how you get it over to the spiritual realm. So uh, this one starts with a performance that's happening at an opera, and it's just there. The performance is supposed to just be for ghosts, but one of Mr. Vampire's assistants ends up going to this performance. Actually, this is the one where the ghost falls in love with Mr. Vampire, if memory serves, that one of the ghosts ends up being a helper from this performance, and then she ends up falling for him. Though 
the two assistants are kind of vying for her attention because she's so attractive. But yeah, I really like this thing and the whole idea of the guy who's supposed to be like the big, great Taoist priest who starts destroying spirits rather than saving the spirits. And because all of these guys who are at this opera end up disappearing away because the assistants knock out the hell police who are keeping them in line. Anyway, I won't go into the whole plot, but I really enjoyed The Ultimate Vampire. Yeah, and while we're at it, I once again want to advocate for the 2013 film Rigor Mortis, which is such a homage and love story to these films featuring so many cast members from the Mr. Vampire series. I mean, Chin Su Ho, who was from the first Mr. Vampire, he's essentially playing himself moving into an apartment complex that's just populated by guys like Anthony Chan or Chung Fat or Richard Richard Ng and then encountering a very serious take on the Zhang Shi. It was directed by uh, Juno Mock, who also did that excellent, uh, pardon me, 2010 film Dream Home, if you ever saw that one. I have not seen that one. You should, especially for uh, the commentary it has about the housing crisis within uh, industrialized China. Does anyone ride an ostrich in rigor mortis? Not that I remember. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, I need to advocate for Crazy Safari, which is the only time you'll ever see a vampire fighting Taoist priest riding an ostrich fight a rhinoceros launching a Jiangxi out an airplane with its own parachute <laughs> it's the most insane thing i think i've ever seen i think i'll have to see i'll have to wait until i uh, see uh, the gods must be crazy before i check out crazy safari because that is an unofficial sequel to that isn't it which i don't even understand but yes <laughs> <laughs> yes it is well yeah nick is in the gods must be crazy movies and then he's in this one as well he's our main bushman and yeah it's i mean there's some bad things going on in here there's some weird racist stuff happening and the the version i cannot find a version that has the commentary it's stephen chow and another guy are doing commentary through the whole thing at first i thought they were dubbing over the bushmen but apparently right yeah but then apparently they're just doing like a running commentary they're kind of like the narrator from the gods must be crazy or from animals are beautiful people and they seem to be doing some spoken word riffing over the movie and i can't find a version that has them subtitled so there's just people talking throughout the movie and i mean mr vampire's subtitled and the uh even the people who are speaking english a lot of times are subtitled because we do have these south africans uh really evil white people in this movie but yeah and then even when uh the nephew uh, or the grandson of the jiang Shi starts speaking english he's subtitled uh <laughs> Which I always love the difference between what they actually say and then what the subtitles say. What do you mean? There's a Chinese film set in Africa that has some questionable racial politics? I would never <laughs> believe in such a thing. <laughs> Syndrome. Wolf Warrior 2. Um. Oh, God. Right now, there's, I mean, I'll look at like Shanghai's news and just to see, like, you know, oh, this person accused of racism or this thing happening in Kenya right now. And I'm just like, wow, something's <laughs> never <laughs> changed, man. <laughs> We are Chinese, and then there's everybody else in the world. Like I, I had to question myself even when I wrote at in my beginning notes, like China and Hong Kong, and I was like, no, 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 Hong Kong is China according to China. Everybody is China according to China. (laughs) Kingdom of Heaven, man. (laughs) Musical vampires out there, eh? It's okay. Mad Mad Ghost, it's out there, eh? 
it's okay. There's a lot of other movies that I didn't have time to, to see, but I was just like, all right, I hear there's a little bit, like I saw the beginning of Shy Spirit, and then I was reading later on that Lam Ching Ying is only at the beginning of Shy Spirit, so I didn't really miss a whole lot. A lot of these movies, um, they're out there whole on YouTube, sometimes with subtitles, sometimes not. Most of the time with subtitles, though the subtitles are entirely questionable. I was joking with Sam before we started uh, recording that I thought about saying all of my lines in broken English because the subtitles themselves are so funny to read because you know what they're trying to say, but they're not quite there yet. Amongst my friends, we refer to that as you go back forward subtitles. And it goes back to when we watched a uh, Hong Kong import of Battle Royale 2, which just had terrible uh, subtitles the entire time. (laughs) And there was the one line that just stood out with us. You go back forward now. (laughs) which if you think about it makes perfect sense but it's still just completely wrong if you are so inclined uh if you uh are uh, uh, kind of a nut you can uh, go to yoku which is china's version of youtube and put in the actual chinese names of these i'm talking like in the actual characters and you'll be able to find a lot of them and surprisingly a lot of them have subtitles and sometimes they're better subtitles than what you're seeing on youtube uh which is kind of crazy so you can go out and see all of the tv show vampire expert which lam ching ying did in his final years of his life unfortunately those are not subtitled and that was a tv series where he was basically playing that same mr vampire character so i can't swear to the quality of those as far as the story because i don't speak cantonese and that's what they were speaking in that so that's how lam ching ying ended up he was in a lot of other things like as we're talking about all these Mr. Vampire films he was also in a bunch of other stuff at the same time so he wasn't just relegated to that one role he was in some terrific movies like Painted Faces and I think he was in Lai Shi China's Last Eunuch and he was in Her Vengeance and a bunch of other stuff which I would recommend Um, but he became primarily known for this particular role and then that was how he kind of played out. Unfortunately, he died of liver cancer in, I want to say, 97, which is ironic since that was the year of the handover. So that's also when a lot of things changed with Hong Kong cinema, and that's why we don't necessarily talk about new or other Mr. Vampire-type films until we get some of these you know, redos like Rigor Mortis. And there's actually some other Vampire Hunter-type movies out there that are supposed to play with the comedy, though not as goofy as some of these. And, by the way, uh, we haven't mentioned Robo Vampire, which is another... Yes! That movie's fucking insane. <laughs> Robo Vampire. Fucking insane. I love the cover art for it a lot, which pits RoboCop versus a Jiangxi. And there's kind of a RoboCop type character in the movie but it's not peter weller that's that's a shame all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show get construction crews in here by Columbus Day, so you got to guess for how long? I've got four really good guys. One week, we're gone. That's fast. I need the job. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. (laughs) 
might actually want to be grateful. You're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The shrinks figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can hear me. You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about this. If they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. We'd have the others. I want to come home. I am so sorry. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of it's supposed to be session nine, um, but things have gotten kind of screwy around here. So it could be begotten for all I know. So you heard the trailer for session nine, but who knows what the next episode's going to be. Regardless, I do know that this week's co-hosts were Sam and El Goro. And I want to thank both of you guys so much. Sam, what has been going on with you? All the things as usual. I guess if I have anything to plug, it would be that I've been involved in both of the upcoming uh, William Castle box sets that are coming out through Indicator. They are amazing, restored, loads of special features. Um, All the films have commentary tracks, and I believe they're both all region, but uh, you could find them on the Indicator site. And I also did a commentary track uh, with Kat, who has been a guest on the projection booth in the past as well, uh, on the film Daisies, which is coming out on Blu-ray through Second Run and is highly, highly recommended. I can't wait to hear what you guys say about that movie. We just cry with excitement the whole time, basically. And El Goro, Chaos Nuevo con tu usted. A lot, uh, mostly because in October I tend to go a little bit crazy over on the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. I'm currently in the middle of my 31 days of Halloween, where every year I select 31 horror films that I've never seen and then watch one a day and record brief podcasts about them. It's always crazy, and that's in addition to the regular weekly podcasts, which have all been horror-themed. Uh, but it is a hell of a lot of fun, particularly since I always try to make an effort to go back to the early decades of horror to fill in those gaps in my knowledge. So it's a nice chance to do a dedicated reconnecting with the genre that I love oh so very dearly. And I've had an opportunity to watch some very interesting movies, including ones that have been on my to-watch pile for some time, including X, the Man with X-Ray Eyes, and uh, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which was a fantastic film. Yay, I love that one. Excellent movie. Any uh, banana spirit on your pile? No banana spirit on my pile, but uh, that's just the podcasting stuff uh, because I'm still watching a ton of other movies because it's October. We, you know, horror fans love horror year round, but uh, we go a little crazy in October. It's the best time of year. I realized that as of this morning, when I rewatched Encounters of the Spooky Kind, I just hit like 35 movies for the month already or something ridiculous well done (laughs) i need to get off the couch and maybe leave the house more (laughs) 
Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.